There's a line in every city that separates the rich from the poor, the strong from the weak, the haves from the have-nots. It's a street, the train tracks, a river, a sidewalk. It's time to cross the line. Serve the City is a global movement of volunteers showing kindness in personal ways to people in need. We are the connection between the good intentions and talents of people who could volunteer and a meaningful opportunity to get involved. Serve the City is for everyone. It's a revolution, a serving revolution. And it's going to change the world. Cross the line, serve the city. This is Serving Stories, a podcast by Serve the City. Hi, I'm your host, Annie Deal. Welcome to today's episode, part one of two, where we cross the line in Brussels, Belgium. Each weekday morning, thousands of smartly dressed commuters disembark from trains in Brussels' north station, the Gare du Nord. They pour through the front doors and down the steps towards jobs in the high-rise, glass-plated buildings that make up Brussels' financial district, an area nicknamed Manhattan. Most of these highly qualified employees live outside the city, in leafy suburbs and villages, far away from the urban issues that plague Brussels, the capital of Belgium and the seat of the European Union. At day's end, all 30,000 of these daily visitors will ascend the station steps and reboard the trains to their warm and cozy homes. But if you were to arrive at the Gare du Nord an hour or two earlier and walk just a couple of blocks past the financial district, you would find a number of people who had not slept quite so comfortably. And you would find another group of people working hard to make sure their day starts off on a more uplifting note. Coffee, tea. Three coffees. Three coffees. That's for you. That's for me. Um... A big white van with the Serve the City logo is parked at the foot of a dark and looming skyscraper on a road starting to be filled by the morning traffic. Volunteers stand on the sidewalk behind a plastic folding table, pouring hot drinks into paper cups and preparing slices of bread. Uh, Right now I'm putting jam on some uh, bread to make some sandwiches and preparing them in a tray so that um, the people who come by can just take it. We have cheese, we have uh, jam, we have butter, we have some uh, mashed tuna, uh, some Nutella, oh well, chocolate spread. It's 6.30 in the morning on a dark, damp, and cold Monday in November. Fortunately, it is above freezing this morning, which it wasn't the previous Monday. It's so mild at the moment, thankfully, isn't it? The people crowding around the table, taking sandwiches and stirring sugar into hot tea and coffee, spent the previous night sleeping outside in a park across the road from where the volunteers are serving breakfast. But they are not simply homeless. They are mostly young men who have traveled thousands of miles to end up in this park in Brussels. David Anderson, an American volunteer who helped lead the project during its first three years, told us about it. 
The people that come to the park and choose to live there are mostly from Africa, Northern Africa and the Middle East. Um, I've met people from Syria, Palestine, uh, Ethiopia, Sudan, um, Libya. I met people from Brazil. It's not just there, they come from all over. Um, I met people from India. Um, I met a guy from Vietnam actually. So it's just people from all over the world. So how did people from so many diverse parts of the world end up sleeping in a park in Brussels' financial district? To answer this, one has to go back to the year 2015. Amid fresh fears that the EU's survival could be threatened by Europe's worst migration crisis since World War II, the bloc's interior ministers are meeting in Brussels. Member so in 2015, so many people arrived all over Europe and so also in Belgium, they all had to come to Brussels. And at a certain moment, the office, the foreigners office, wasn't able to handle all the applies for asylum on one day. So they're limited to 250 a day that they would register. But every day there was maybe 500 people standing in line to apply for asylum. So people would start camping in the park across the street. And that was in August 2015. This is Doreen Strobe, a Belgian from Flanders who has been living in Brussels for the past 15 years. She described how Belgian citizens got involved with the migrants in Park Maximilian. Citizens started to hand out soup to the people who started to camp in the park and they started to bring blankets. And very fast, like in August, a whole camp started to organize. Citizens started to come to help to prepare food. There were voluntary doctors. People brought clothes, warm clothes, because in the evening it could already be very cold. There were uh, social workers giving information about the procedures in Belgium. Um, so that's how the citizens platform, which is still exists today, started to get organized and came to existence. And pretty early on, Doreen also found herself drawn into all that activity. And it was five minutes from where I lived. Since it was so close to my door, I had to pass there almost every day at a certain moment. And I was like... I'm just going to stop there and see what I can do. And um, since I was working full time, I came in the evening and I, I, I cleaned toilets. I, I uh, welcomed people who just arrived, uh, showed them a free tent. Uh, I helped uh, preparing sandwiches. Uh. The specific reason hundreds of people camped in Park Maximilian is that it was right across the street from the foreigner's office. Staying in the park strategically placed them to be first in line to apply for asylum. Back in 2015, people would sleep in front of the door or arrive at four o'clock in the morning to be in the front of the line. Uh, so very early on, people started to serve hot coffee, uh, some bread. So and I knew sort of city and Carlton. And uh, so I was like, hey, I think sort of the city should be involved in this. Carlton Deal. The founder and CEO of Serve the City was the director of Serve the City Brussels at the time. Carlton took up the challenge to start a new project in his neighborhood, the project now known as Breakfast for Refugees. He recalled what it was like at the beginning. Yeah, we started Breakfast for Refugees in May 2016. You know, if you're going to start something called Breakfast for Refugees, you should probably have a plan for breakfast, right? 
I didn't really have one. Uh, my idea was, I know some people who live nearby, maybe they can make some coffee and bring it with them. And I thought, you know, all of us, we can bring some food, right? Like we could bring some some uh, muffins or some fruit or or maybe we could go to the local boulangerie and say, did, did you have some food left over that you were going to throw away? So that's what Carlton did, running around to some of the boulangerie or bakeries and asking for unsold goods. On that first day, the results were quite astounding. And uh, and this guy got immediately what we were trying to do, and he really valued it, so much so that he literally emptied the store into my car. And I have a reasonable-sized car, and it was packed. And not just with bread, like loaves and loaves and loaves of bread, but also with cakes, with pies, with tarts, like all the most delicious things that a boulangerie has to offer. And we have never had another breakfast for refugees like that, but I just love that the first one started with this abundance of good things. In fact, you know, people would come through the line and we would not just offer them, you know, a piece of bread, we would offer them a loaf of bread. And then we would say, please take a whole chocolate cake. Please take a strawberry tart. Um, It was just amazing to be able to give them so much, you know, on that first day. When I woke up at 5 a.m., it didn't feel good. Didn't feel good at all. I was like, yes, I need some more sleep. Especially when you you don't go to sleep early enough. Then you can feel it. But uh, then you start doing this, it's like, it's it's going well. Early on this cold, dark Monday, volunteers start arriving at the storage room of the Serve the City Brussels office to prepare for the project. Bubbling coffee percolators line the walls, and supplies like paper cups and spreads fill tall shelves. Jeffrey, one of the volunteers, explained the procedure. Um, So right now we are working for this project called Breakfast for Refugees. And it's um, almost 6 a.m., I guess. Um, So right now we need some coffee and some tea for people. So what what I'm doing now is getting the tea ready so what we do usually on sunday um, someone comes and gets everything ready for tomorrow which is today monday at 5 a.m the machine will start boiling and then the coffee will be made and then we can come so right now we have hot water but i need to put hot water in the kettle so that we get the tea for the people and uh, the other guys are currently getting ready the um, Bread, Uh also all the drinks, like um, orange juice, these kind of things. And yeah, so for this we are three, three people in the morning, one driver and two others, well, to help set up everything so that all the volunteers have all they need on site. The whole preparation process runs like a well-oiled machine. But it hasn't always been this way. Lucy, the Monday project leader, who has been on the Breakfast for Refugees team since the very beginning, shared her experience. I'm Lucy. Um, I've been volunteering with Serve City for about three and a half years. I started when the project first started. This project's changed like an incredible amount since I first started. I remember some of the first times that I went, we just like 
have quite like random supplies and like bread that we picked up from bakeries that wasn't sliced and we'd be there with like these massive bread knives frantically slicing like 20 loaves of bread outside uh, Park Maximilia but yeah it's absolutely incredible how much it's like grown and evolved over the last three and a half years. At the beginning when we were trying to figure it out we really didn't know what we were doing and uh, I would pick Lucinda up we would uh, like five in the morning we'd get to the office we'd turn on the coffee machine which kept shutting off on its own so we'd have to restart the thing. I also thought oh, the bread must be fresh. You know, we must go to the boulangerie and buy it first thing in the morning or get them to donate it to us. At a certain point, it, it occurred to us all, you know what, the stores, they sell bread. And that bread is already sliced. And we have a freezer, so we can just keep it. And then we also discovered that actually there are timers for coffee machines. So now we can set up the coffee in the luxury of a Sunday afternoon. So the setup is a little bit easier now, but of course we're also serving more people. Breakfast for Refugees now serves two mornings a week, Monday and Tuesday. They have also expanded the number of places they serve, as Jeffrey explained. Now we have two sites, Pacheco and uh, Parc Maximilien. Um, so that means we have two teams. So first of all, we go to Parc Max where we load off the, um, the supplies, then we set up everything, the team starts working and then after I think we stay there for half an hour and then we move to Pacheco where another team will be waiting for us for to do the actually the same the very same thing. So why the two different sites? In fact, the two sites reflect two different migrant populations that have come to Brussels. But it's really two distinct communities because there is one group of, um, of people who want to apply for asylum in Belgium, and their hope is to walk through the door of the, the Office des Etrangers and, uh, and put their fingerprints down and be granted a place to sleep that night in a refugee center, either in Brussels or elsewhere in Belgium, um, and then enter the process. And um, the other group of people, though, had no intention to apply for asylum in Belgium. In fact, their hope, um, their hope is to go to the UK. And their modes of transport, of course, are very dangerous, illegal. Um, it's not ever something we would recommend. I mean, in fact, we try to discourage people from that, but still, like, they have their hopes set on it, and they've been walking from Sudan for months, you know, to to get to the UK. That's that's their plan for their, their life. So they were living at the park, so we would have these two groups of people, people standing in line and people who would just come from the park um, that we would serve breakfast to. And at this point, you might rightly be wondering... So what is the difference between a migrant, an asylum seeker, and a refugee? In fact, these are all different legal terms. Doreen explained the difference to us. So people who arrive on the Belgian territory without uh, legal documents to, to be on the territory is called an irregular migrant. So if you are fleeing for, from your country because of the situation in, in your country and in your country you are in danger these people can apply for asylum um, and while they are in procedure there's no official answer yet uh, those people are asylum seekers like people applying for international protection once there is an answer and it's a positive answer on their apply for protection, they get the refugee status. 
So then they are refugees. In the last year or so, the Office des étrangers, the foreigner's office, has moved from the financial district to another location downtown on the Boulevard Pacheco. But the team has remained committed to serve both groups of people, both those who are applying for asylum and those who are not. Well, I mean, the, especially the people at Park Max, they're people that have get kind of bad reputation in the media and around like the local population and in the uh, politics of Brussels. But at the end of the day, they've had like awful, awful, arduous journeys to get to Brussels. And I think that the people should at least like just give them a friendly face and have a chat with them and give them a coffee, no? Meanwhile, at the Serve the City Brussels office, the coffee and tea are ready, and we meet Rob, the third team member who has been putting the other supplies into the van. I'm a Belgian-American citizen. I grew up in Canada, and I've been here for a while and decided to start volunteering about a month, month and a half ago. I came here uh, just before six, and, uh, went to go get up the keys upstairs, and uh, gonna take this van and then we're gonna go to Park Max and then Pacheco. As you can hear, it's pretty windy outside and not so warm at this hour. But in the van, Lucy has a pretty positive outlook. Actually, I honestly have this theory that on Monday mornings at 6.30, it's never rained in Brussels. Honestly, I think in this three and a half years, I must have been there in the rain twice. Like, it's crazy, you know, but it, I don't know. It never, it never rains on Monday morning, ever. I think the Tuesday team have had a few, uh, a few bad days, but honestly, I, I guarantee it never rains on, at 6 a.m. on Monday morning in Brussels. Carlton definitely has some cold morning memories. You know, we started in May, so through the summer, the weather was good, and the autumn, and suddenly, you know, as October turned to November, we realized, uh-oh, you know, January is coming. And, uh, and sure enough, it's like pitch black, it's zero degrees outside, and there's 10, 12 of us as volunteers, and we're freezing. But in being cold, we realized a kind of solidarity with our refugee friends who, they were cold all night long. And after being cold at breakfast, they would be cold the rest of the day, whereas I could go home and take a take a warm shower. I could go into a, a heated building. But he believes that this difficulty, instead of keeping volunteers from the project, has been part of its draw. You know, I think nobody comes to us and says, hey, I would like to volunteer, and please, would you give me something very easy to do? Because I, you know, I don't mind being bored while volunteering. I mean, nobody says that. Everybody who says, right, I'm going to volunteer means I know there are problems out there. I know there are challenges and I'm willing to give myself to that. So I think it almost increased the appeal of Breakfast for Refugees that, hey, this is going to be hard. You're going to be cold. We're going to be outside. But in that, we're going to sense solidarity with our refugee friends. The van pulls into its first stop, Park Maximilian, or as the volunteers call it, Park Max. Raymond, an Irish volunteer who heads up the Tuesday project and logistics for Breakfast for Refugees, gave us his own vivid description of the Park Max site. So Park Max is sort of in a post-apocalyptic landscape. It's a park in the middle of this desolate bunch of skyscrapers which are very domineering above you and they're in the process of being demolished or renovated or something but they're all empty and generally you have these 
tall skyscrapers and these little alcoves at the ground floor where some of the people we serve sleep in. Doesn't have much light in the park and there are people sleeping around the place and there's a bit of rubbish flying around in the wind and usually there's a bit of drizzle as well and there are a few street lights that aren't working and generally once it gets into the winter like it is now you're showing up it's completely dark again it might be wet not many people around you might think what am i doing here it's a sort of a feeling <laughs> Once at Park Max, the volunteers set up tables and breakfast items on the sidewalk. Some migrants have been waiting for them, others begin drifting in from the darkness of the park across the road. They warm their hands around cups of hot tea and coffee. And generally, I think literally just getting the food in the morning helps a lot. Helps having a hot drink and some food. You can see everybody almost like visibly see their energy levels come up. You can see them recover from a from a long night where they maybe they've slept in the park or they've tried to get on a bus or they've been kicked off wherever they've come from and they take this moment and they just have that cup of tea or whatever. Uh, a bit of solidarity with people. Maybe they talk to some of the others. Everybody resets and then they go again. We ask a group of migrants where they are from. Every country. North Africa. South Africa. Every country. I am Tunisian. Algerian. He is Algerian. He's from Sudan. Ethiopia. Eritrea. Senegal. Senegal. Yemeni. Yemen. Asia. Asia. Yemen. Iraq. Iraq. Syria. Syria. Kuwait. Kuwait. Palestine. We. Palestine. 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 Many, many, many. All the races of the world are in this park, and all kinds of circumstances have brought them there as Dave, the former project leader we heard from earlier, recounts. It was amazing the stories I heard about why people left where they came from. Um, because you think about, I was thinking about that, you know, they probably crossed a desert, they crossed a very dangerous sea and risked their life, and somehow they made it to Belgium, some walking. And what would be so terrible that would drive a person to do that? And so I heard stories, uh, one man from Africa, I won't say the nation or his name, but he was in, he was a journalist with his family. And he had um, been involved in, in a newspaper and there were, they had published a few articles that were negative against the government leadership. And um, he told me that one day he got a call and was told that his, um, the police had been to their office and had, his dad was dead and his grandfather was dead and the police were looking for him. And so he took his wife and child out into the bush or the countryside, and then he got on a plane and came to Brussels. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> 
A migrant from Sudan approaches us and wants to express how challenging it is staying in the park. His French is broken and very difficult to understand, but it is clear that he feels forgotten and alone. He has been here only a week and a half, and his story is often interrupted with coughing. I mean, there are so many people I've met who don't know what day it is, and they've got teeth ache and they've got problems and they just don't really know what to do so they, they just come along they have their coffee and they sort of look bemusedly around themselves at whatever is happening that day and it's really a difficult time because of the timelessness of the situation because there is no plan there is nothing they can do they're there they can't go they're not wanted there they're not wanted anywhere they can't really leave uh, what do you do? There's, it's, a, it's a purgatory of sorts. The migrant pours out his frustration as he says he has been left behind. It becomes clear that we are here not just to serve coffee, but to lend a listening ear and to show these people that they are not forgotten. What I do find is, speaking to people, we get people we serve coming to us at the tables when we're handing out breakfast and they just come up and say thank you so much because just being here shows us that everybody is not against us you're demonstrating that the world actually has kind people who want us to be here and that's something we don't get anywhere else the migrants not being wanted is a definite problem it has become both a political and a personal issue in brussels Long-time participants remember one Monday morning in September 2017 as the most difficult breakfast ever. That, that was actually probably like the most difficult breakfast that I've, that I've been to. Maybe the most challenging morning at Breakfast for Refugees was a, a morning when the police had planned an arrest for irregular migrants. So we were just there, normal, normal day, serving away. Had like, for some reason, like, I just remember we had a load of bananas. I'm not sure where they came from, but we had about three massive boxes of bananas. And when we arrived to set up the table, we saw police vans everywhere. But we were like, well, okay, whatever, we'll just get started. So we set up the tables and coffee and food and so on, and uh, and they didn't do anything. And like 15 or 20 minutes later, once people had gathered around our table, then they sprung into action. All the police officers jumped out, and they just like ran towards the breakfast, and they like grabbed people that were serving. And there must have been 50 policemen that arrived, and they brought in their their buses, and they started arresting these guys and uh, using the um, electrical ties, the plastic banding, to tie their hands behind them back, their backs and put them on the bus. And, and then the kind of horrific realization sunk in. They were waiting for us to set the breakfast up because they knew that people would come to our table and then they would trap them around the table where we were serving our refugee friends and this just broke our hearts yeah it was really difficult because the people that we were serving were trying to hide behind us and then it was just really difficult for us to know what to do when the police are there and there's someone behind you just, it was it was it was crazy of course not everybody wanted to get their hands tied behind their back so there was some tussling or rustling going on and we stood there helplessly while i mean some some refugees raced away and others were trapped and handcuffed and uh, and put in the van and, and and taken away 
and it was really difficult. But of course, it's a very complex situation. I mean, it's it, they aren't in Belgium legally, and they're not trying to be in Belgium legally. Um, and there are many forces at play within Belgium, some who are in favor of the best services and protection for irregular migrants and some who, you know, really want them to, to move on. But in the midst of that difficult situation, a couple of remarkable things happened. One of them made the front page of the Brussels newspapers. But I remember someone like, someone got an amazing photo of like a police person arresting one of the people we're giving breakfast to. And this photo got picked up by the Belgian news. So you can see the police, you can see the, the irregular migrants and their faces blurred out. And then you can see this, uh, this volunteer, Anne, and what is it that she's doing? Look in her hand and she's got something yellow. She's got a banana. Anne is putting a banana into the pocket of one of the migrants. One guy, one of our friends that we knew was getting his hand zip tied behind his back and one of our volunteers is putting a banana in his pocket, I guess, because she thought he wouldn't get anything to eat wherever he was going, but she wanted to make sure he was being taken care of. Her feeling was this guy came for breakfast and whether he's arrested this morning or not, I'm gonna make sure that he gets some breakfast. And kindness is not something only to be extended to our friends, but also to those who seem to be opposing us. But I, I loved one of our leaders, David. Um, you know, as soon as the police came and, and they started arresting people, David right, rightly concluded, hey, probably none of these police woke up in the morning thinking, oh, good, I get to go arrest people at the Breakfast for Refugees today. You know, they're, they're just doing their jobs. I realized that the police officers individually probably didn't support what they were doing. They'd been told by somebody else to come and do this. I didn't know that, but I suspected that was the case. So David made up a tray of coffee and, and breakfast, and he served the police. We started offering them coffee after they got done uh, with their action. And they didn't accept it, and I didn't know what the reaction would be to that. Frankly, some of our volunteers were not happy that some of us were offering coffee to the police after they'd done such an egregious thing in our minds. But offering coffee to the police officers had made more of an impression than the team realized. Probably three or four months later, one of our volunteer leaders was at a party, and she was talking with a lady. And um, the lady asked Marie what she did, and she was talking about Serve the City. And the lady goes, oh, she goes, my husband's a policeman. And she said, Serve the City is really a different organization. They reach out, they try to help us. He said, well, I was there that morning when the police arrested uh, irregular migrants at Breakfast for Refugees, and one of your volunteers served the police coffee. And it was fun to hear the story from his point of view that that kindness um, had, had sunk in. These days, relations between police and volunteers are smoother, according to Raymond and Lucy. I mean, we never really had any troubles with the police, usually. If they come by, they just say hello, we offer them a coffee or a tea or, or something. And we try to, like, be, like, nice with them because it's the, it's the only way, so... Yeah, it's their job. I mean, it's probably not their personal decision, but they're there and doing that job and they're just following what, they're, what they have to do. So. And they were quite friendly. So I've always had good experiences with them. One of our projects recently, the police had come in, they were under orders to clear the park, I believe, and they saw that we were handing out breakfast and they actually decided to postpone that until we finished because they decided uh, they didn't want to interrupt people having the one bit of a bright spot in their day. So they were actually quite kind in that, in, in that example. There is still a great deal of controversy over what to do with the migrants in the park. 
and even over whether people should do such a simple thing as serve them breakfast. Lucy doesn't see it as a big problem, and Raymond would tend to agree with her. Someone will always have some problem with anything that anyone is doing now, so... I think so far it's been fine, been fine actually. Um, um, sometimes we actually have the opposite thing where, I don't know, local bakers and things will come by with like bags of croissant and pastries that they haven't sold the day before and they, they know that we're there so they just come and give it and ask us to give it out. So actually the like reaction from people around has been mostly really positive. How do we interact with Belgians? I think very well. We have Belgian people who volunteer with us. Uh, we have Belgian people who work in buildings nearby who come and volunteer before work. Uh, we see, even beyond Belgians, locals, I'll say, wherever they're from, uh, who walk past us. Usually they have two reactions. 70% of people have a look and walk on. And then 30% of people stop and say, this is really great what you're doing. Um, maybe I can help out sometimes. And we sometimes get people contacting us afterwards with donations or asking if they can help out. So I would say it's been quite positive. But Carlton remembers some more critical reactions to the breakfast on social media. Many people thought um, around Belgium, don't serve breakfast to refugees. I mean, we even saw some of these posts. People are coming to Europe. They're coming to Brussels. They're coming to Park Maximilian because there's a really nice breakfast being offered for them. I mean, you should see this breakfast. There's coffee, fruit, pastries. And if we just stop serving breakfast, then the refugees are not, I mean, unbelievable, right? Carlton was a little incredulous at the suggestion that people would cross deserts and seas for a tuna sandwich and a cup of coffee. But he does recognize that providing systems and support enables these people to be here. However, he doesn't feel it is a good enough reason to stop showing kindness to people in need. But for us, we felt like people are people are people, and whether they should be there or they should not be there, they have basic human needs, and um, and and people make the best decisions in their life when they know that they're cared for, when they know that they're secure, um, when they know that they're accepted, not when they're chasing that, you know, not when they're running away, not when they're living in fear. So we just feel like, hey, let's surround them with love and support and compassion. That gives us the opportunity then to come alongside people and, and help them make good decisions for their life. Sometimes, though, opponents can become quite vocal. One summer day at the start of the 2019 Big Volunteer Week, a large group of Serve the City volunteers spent the afternoon in Park Max playing football and hanging out with the migrants. As they were getting ready to leave, one of the people who lived next to the park came to confront them. And this one Belgian guy kind of appeared in the park and you know he was a bit drunk and uh, could tell that there was some wound or some bandage on his face. And, and I noticed that he, he stopped my wife and he was, uh, he was talking to her, he was very, very animated. I was like, what is this guy doing? And so I, I went over to my wife to kind of try to protect her and um, you know she was doing fine and she was able to kind of help the guy talk out his uh, his problem but in fact he, he lives near the park so he lives in an apartment on the opposite side of the park. It came out that as he was walking through the park the previous week a couple of the migrants had beaten him up and stolen 20 euros from him. And he was furious and you can understand that he was furious and he wanted all of those people gone and he'd shown up in town hall meetings and demanded that they you know, that they be removed from the park. Carlton and his wife listened to the man until he calmed down and wandered off. 
A moment later, one of the migrants came over to them and asked them about the conversation. He stopped us and he said, what, what was he saying and, and, and is he all right? And um, he, in fact, told us the other side of the story. He said, yes, it's true. There were some guys that, that, that beat him up. And he said, we're really sorry for that. Like, we're not like that. Most of us are not like that. And, and he was really interested in trying to seek reconciliation between the, you know, these, these refugees at the park and, and, and Belgian neighbors. Whenever any large group of people gathers, it is likely there will be at least a few bad eggs. Also, the stress and deprivation the migrants go through can spark aggressive antisocial behavior. Dave remembers one such experience. So I'm a project leader. I'm responsible for making sure everything gets set up. I'm responsible for the other volunteers. And I take that very seriously. I want everybody to have a meaningful volunteering experience. So we have eight volunteers behind the table and they're working hard. And all of a sudden I hear a guy yelling at us. A young man, I assume from North Africa, very, very angry. So I ignore him. But guess what? He doesn't stop yelling. And I thought, well, I'm the leader. I have to do something. I can't let this go on because it was really bothering our volunteers. So I walked out to him and I said, so what, what's wrong? And he was really upset and was yelling at us. And I didn't understand why he was yelling. So I kept asking him questions. And I finally said, I can't even imagine how difficult it is for you to be here and to go through what you have had to go through. And the man started crying and quit yelling. And it just moved me. It was really, really touching for me. And we offered him some coffee and a sandwich and sat down and talked to him. Um, but again, it's just the stress level, the, the impact. You know, you think about the physical issues with, with these guys, um, but there's such mental stress associated with living in the street also. The project leaders eventually found ways to help manage the kind of mob behavior that is driven by having a scarcity of everything. One of the things you don't want to happen if you're serving breakfast to 400 people is have a mob come to your table and just overrun you. And we learned pretty quickly how to manage that the best we could. And um, so we would have all of the guys line up down the sidewalk. And of course, there's always people that don't want to line up. And so we uh, asked some of the guys from Sudan if they would help us. So they, of course, they're hungry and they want to eat, but they, they volunteered to be our security detail. So they would um, stand there and make sure people didn't cut. And that helped us as volunteers. We didn't have to create confrontation with the people we were trying to serve. This kind of cooperation between the volunteers and migrants is not at all unusual. Dave tells us that the migrants find connection by pitching in and helping serve alongside the volunteers. And oftentimes they help us unload, they help us to set up, and, and then we start serving breakfast. And um, when I first arrived, we were serving three to 400 people every morning. It was a huge, huge effort to do that. A lot of supplies, a lot of coordination. Oftentimes we were short of volunteers and the migrants would help us. They would get behind the table and start making sandwiches. And uh, of course I was concerned about them and I'd tell them, no, go on the other side. After they helped for a while because we needed the help, I'd say, it, we're fine, go ahead. And they would not stop. They wanted to serve their friends and the people that were also sleeping in the park, which showed me just how much compassion they had for each other. Sometimes they help not only by serving, but also by donating the little they have to serve others. So it was, I think it was a few weeks ago now, but um, so we were down on Monday morning um, serving at Park Max and we ran out of bread. 
so we were about to pack up but then one of the guys that we were serving someone had given him a bag full of bread so he like was like wait 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 I've got some bread so he went off and came back like two minutes later with this massive bag of baguettes and he was like no you can use it and then you can continue so like someone had given him bread and then he gave it to us so that we could like spread it with stuff and give it to everyone there which I think is, is a, an amazing story. Raymond remembered one particular Pakistani migrant that the volunteers became quite good friends with. He was quite a, quite a loner until he started coming and spending a bit of time with us. And his English was fantastic. And he ended up chatting with us quite a lot. And then as the weeks went on, he started bringing food for us for our breakfast shift. So we often would only have basic sandwiches and coffee and tea and maybe a couple of other things. But he would actually start buying biscuits, against our wishes of course, and coming over and saying, I got these for everyone. And started contributing and then started handing them out himself. And that was amazing. So he came behind the table and was helping us out. And we don't know why he did it. We don't know what he got out of it, but he seemed to really enjoy it. And I think he really liked being on the other side of the table. So it's something that we always try and do a bit more of is get out from behind our side of the table and talk to people. But this was a case of somebody from the other side making that move. And, uh, and unfortunately, one of the days uh, he just wasn't there anymore. And we don't know where he went, but we hope he's okay because we really enjoyed talking to him. While the team continues serving at Park Max, we head over to the asylum office at Boulevard Pacheco to spread the breakfast joy. Riding with Rob in the van, we ask how he started to volunteer with Serve the City. Uh, well, actually, 10 years ago, I, I volunteered uh, when, I went to, when I was in high school. Do you know the IB program? There's these things called CAS hours. And I worked uh, at this high school with these um, special needs kids. And it was really awesome because... Uh, you know, I got to uh, I got to paint with them and give sort of these uh, like painting classes, I guess, art classes. At that time, the International School of Brussels, or ISB, had partnered with Serve the City to provide volunteering opportunities for its students. And in Canada too, I did some volunteering, but it had been so long. Uh, I figured, let me get back into it. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know why all of a sudden, but I just sort of missed it. All right, so now we're just pulling up at Pacheco. Uh, this is where they, the office, um, once they have an appointment, and they seek asylum. And so I think it opens at like eight o'clock, so we get here like 45 minutes before and serve sandwiches and tea and coffee. The location of the new foreigner's office has a much different feel than the Park Max site. Boulevard Pacheco Karankat is just a regular street in Brussels, big wide street, and we are on the side where people queue for the office where they go through the asylum process. So we usually stand and set up outside that entrance and most of the people, it's usually about 150 people, are usually milling around, standing around from about half past seven in the morning until eight when it opens. And everybody's there with children and quite a nice atmosphere, so to speak. People are looking forward to being able to have their interview. There obviously, there's a bit of nervousness and a dynamic of apprehension. But generally, people there are looking forward to getting onto the next step and they're quite optimistic about what's going to happen. When we arrive, volunteers are waiting for us, ready to unload and set up. If there's a two or three tables in our room, um, I think there's going to be two. Two, and then a small one for the kids? Oh, we have a small table here. I didn't see a small one last time. Okay. Uh, oh, it might, it might. There's a large group of people milling around the entrance. 
These are the asylum seekers who have an interview scheduled here today. As we talk to volunteers preparing breakfast, we find out that Rob is not the only one who started volunteering in high school. Hi, good morning. What can good I morning get to you? A coffee. A coffee. In fact, one volunteer named Nicholas is still in high school. Yes, I'm still in high school. Um, I go to the European school um, in Uccle. Well, I got involved in Serve the City from when I was quite young. My mum used to take us to do these projects and we did the volunteer week. And then at the beginning of this school year, she started coming here. Um, she's not with us today, but she usually comes and volunteers, and now I do it because I have some free time. We asked Nicholas what motivated him to volunteer with asylum seekers early in the morning before going to his school. Well, from, from my own perspective, I'm um, a migrant, so I'm not Belgian. Um, I have like family history of people having to migrate because of um, either conflicts or s difficult situations. I'm Maltese and Serbian, so it's quite a strange mix, but yeah. I think it's really important that everyone um, opens their arms to people because you never know when you're going to be in that situation. And even if you're not, it's just simply the human thing to do, I think. Um, and to see people in such a difficult situation and you hear about it in the news and you just sit at home and you feel like you can't do anything, well, actually, there is something you can do, even if it's a small sandwich for breakfast that you make for someone. Raymond, like Nicholas, grew up with a mother who volunteered and absorbed the value for himself. Before he came to Brussels a year ago, he spent two months as a volunteer in a Greek refugee camp. I was teaching English to level one, so basic level, to teenagers between the age of 15 and 19. I had a class of about eight people, nine people from the refugee camp, which was on the island called Chios that we were on. Raymond loved getting to know the teenagers he was working with as individuals, not just by their label of asylum seeker. I always remember meeting the, the, the students in Greece, learning about some of the seemingly irrelevant details about their personal life that they might want to share. One of the students uh, told me that he had 17 birds in his apartment in Syria and Damascus. And he knew all their names, he knew their types, and he drove a, 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 a Ford car. And he was really, it was really important that he described exactly this car and how he fixed it, and he had 17 birds. And it's things like this that are you know, a bit random, but really show you that it's impossible to group people together in this way. One day at the Pacheco site, he had quite a big surprise. Uh, a, few, a few months ago now, where we were handing out our usual breakfast at, at Pacheco, and I looked across the crowd and I saw one of my students uh, there in Brussels, who had come all the way from Mogadishu in Somalia, via Chios, where I had taught him English for about four weeks. He was a very good student, uh, very polite. Um, all of those group that we had from there were. And he showed up now here. He's uh, living in Belgium and was under 18, an unaccompanied minor. And thankfully had managed to make his way through everything uh, to find a place in, I think it was Liège, and he was going through his interview process in Brussels when I bumped into him. So that was a very, really touching, nice way to connect the dots and have that consistency between what you see in one location and what you see in another location and really feel like the effort you put in has benefits further down the road. Coffee's behind you, eh? Coffee's behind you. <laughs> behind the tables, volunteers continue to offer the small services of a sandwich and a smile and occasionally a bit of conversation. One man in line answers a question about his interview today. For me, it is second. By some, it is first. 
and others are coming here for came, taking uh, uh, Annex uh, 26. Annex 26 is that is um, the official agreement that you are coming now to ask uh, asylum international protection. He explains the process of asking for international protection, known as asylum, and the interviews that follow that request. They gave you an appointment for interview after getting the Annex 26 appointment for coming for interview. Uh, first interview and maybe the second the following because we have addresses. For the addresses he refers to are federal asylum centers all over Belgium. He has traveled about half an hour on a train to get here, and others have come even further. But he is happy not to be on the street like the irregular migrants in the park. Yeah, no, I'm protected. No one can be on the street if we already, um, I can say, um, arrived to registration. This man seems fairly optimistic about his interview today, but... He is sympathetic to many others around whose chances of acceptance are less certain. So me, I'm coming uh, from Africa, but some people who are coming from other sides, me, I came directly here in Belgium, but some people who are starting by Italia, by France, by Greece, I don't know. And another asylum seeker coming through the breakfast line falls into this category. I don't know, no, I have Dublin, it's Germany, one year's here. I not finished Dublin. This is very bad here, so because it's Dublin, it's Germany, two years. The Dublin he is referring to is the EU's Dublin Agreement, which says that an asylum seeker can only have one request for asylum open in a member state. If they try to apply in another member state, they can be sent back to the place they first applied. Yeah, I don't know, maybe it's coming, today I'm coming back, it's Germany. Yeah, it's very bad. The relatively low chance of being approved as an official refugee causes a great deal of anxiety. In the beginning of the refugee crisis, when so many were arriving, this led many asylum seekers to sleep in front of the office door or arrive very early in the morning to have a better chance of being seen. Carlton remembers one moving story from the early days. The very front of the line was a young couple um, from India. And I don't know what time they arrived, but obviously early enough to get the very first spot in line. And uh, so we had some coffee and, and fruit and sandwiches on a tray, and we would take it to the line to, to offer people, and they politely uh, declined, and we would serve others. And the team kept offering breakfast to the couple, but each time they turned them down. Eventually, Carlton returned to the table to serve the other migrants coming from the park. And suddenly, the guy from this couple, the Indian guy, came racing up to our table, and he said, uh, please, would you help me? And so, of course, I was concerned to see what, what he needed. And he said, my wife needs to go to the toilet. And I remembered having noticed that she was pregnant. And what I realized had been happening is that she had an increasing need to go to the toilet, but they were first in line. And it's not like they could say to the person next to them whom they'd never met and didn't trust, oh, save my spot in line. I mean, for him, I think the, uh, the only alternatives were, you know, either we leave our spot in line, which is our hope, you know, of having asylum in a new country, um, or I just tell my wife she has to just wait until we get inside. But then suddenly a third alternative came to his mind. It's those people who offered us coffee and who offered us something to eat. Maybe they would help us. Carlton got one of the female volunteers to help the woman find a toilet she could use nearby. 
And when they came back, this guy was so grateful. He literally bowed down at my feet. He kissed my feet in gratitude. And I was just so touched by the simple things that that we can do that show love and kindness and how important it is to be able to be present in people's needs and to let them know that, I mean, even they refused our, they declined our kindness previously, but they knew that we were there ready to help them if they needed something. It's tough to get up early in the morning. It's tough to go out into the dark and the cold. But really, for the volunteers at Breakfast for Refugees in Brussels, that is not the hardest thing about the project. I think the hardest thing for me about Breakfast for Refugees was not uh, getting up early in the morning, not figuring out where bread or coffee would come from, uh, not, not being cold, but just that that's all we were doing. All we were doing was serving breakfast to refugees. Like, what difference does that make? Great, they have something to eat or something to drink. Um, they're going to need it again the next day and the next day after that. Um, and for I, I think for me in Serve the City, I think there is a certain kind of courage in doing what you can and not then being able to do everything. In fact, it's it's a lot less disturbing even to our souls maybe to just not do anything. Because uh, as soon as you do something, then you realize there's so much more. Um, so I think I felt that pain and I know other volunteers did every every week, every time you encounter people in such desperate situations, you're like, well, what else can we do? But in the end, what keeps them going is that the small things that we do really can make a big difference. You know, you, you just never know the, the final ultimate impact of a kindness showed to someone. And, um, and it isn't then about the coffee or about the breakfast. It is about the human kindness that's shown. And, and I can remember moments when refugees would just look at us and say, thank you. Like they knew we didn't have to be there. We were doing it to, to be loving and to be kind and to offer a welcome. And, and you could just see it in their eyes sometimes. And, and I just hope that, that that really, you know, even deeply gave them a sense that they're loved, that they're valued, that they're respected, that they're cared for, and that, uh, you know, that, their need, that they could trust that their needs would be met. I'm here with CEO and founder of Serve the City, Carlton Deal. Hi, Carlton. Hi. We just heard from you in this podcast about Brussels, about how you were involved in these projects. And I was wondering if you would share what value of Serve the Cities that you see exemplified here. Yeah, thanks. Um, I could probably make a case for just about any of them. Uh, it's a, really a profound experience um, to be involved with Breakfast for Refugees. But I think the one that stands out to me is compassion, um, just because, as I mentioned, that the chance even to be cold with people, you know, all that, all that is a sense of solidarity. So I, I feel like that was motivating uh, volunteers, that sense of compassion and uh, really just the desire to pour as much love as possible into a cup of coffee, you know, or how do you hand someone a sandwich and just really convey compassion to them? I think that's what was on the heart of, of volunteers. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Hey, I have a question for you, actually, Ani. 
Um, I know that you also encountered the same man that uh, that we encountered, the Belgian man um, who was who was uh, beaten up in the park. Uh, could you tell us that story? Yeah, that's right. I encountered him in the same week that um, my mom encountered him in the same park. And it was right when we were about to leave the park after having served some food to the migrants there. And he approached uh, the group, and particularly me, quite aggressively, um, threatening his own life. Mm. And I could sense that in his... Um, in the way that he was saying all this, he was suffering. And what he really wanted and what he really needed was actually compassion. And so instead of pulling away, I went right towards him and went down to his level. He was sitting on a bench and looked straight into his eyes and just listened. And I didn't even say a word for several minutes, just listened to what he had to say. And I watched as he started to calm down until he finally asked me a question and asked me my name, which I told him. And he started to sing a song that my name reminded him of. And we started to go into this little game, this back and forth game of I would mention a word and he would sing a song. And it was a completely different atmosphere to what we our interaction started with. And I just couldn't believe how... Um, it could shift, actually, someone's entire state to just give them that love, that compassion in even just a few minutes. Mm, wow, what a beautiful story. And uh, to hear those songs, that's so special. Thank you for sharing that. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us today on Serving Stories. I have been your host, Ani Deal. Serving Stories was written and produced by Shannon Deal. Music and technical production by Parker Deal. Design by Jeremy Malingro. Special thanks to the Serve the City Brussels Breakfast for Refugees team, some of whose voices did not make it on this podcast. Please know that we think you are all heroes. Join us next time on Serving Stories for part two in Brussels, when we see how citizens are joining forces to offer humanitarian aid to people who desperately need it and how volunteering can address not only social, but also personal problems. If you want to find out more about Serve the City and how to get involved in a project near you, go to servethecity.net. Keep on serving and sharing your stories.